Welcome to The Dirt on the Past, a program of the Extreme History Project that explores the good, the bad, and the ugly about our human past. Because, let's face it, Crystal. Yep, history is not pretty, but it is so important to know. Because it is the very thing that has led us to the most critical concerns that we have in the present. So join me, Nancy Mahoney. And me, Crystal Alegria. As we talk to archaeologists and historians who have been digging in the dirt. And in the archives. To uncover the fascinating histories that are not only relevant to today's issues. But help us move forward in a better way with a deeper understanding of our past. Well, hello, everyone. It's finally summer in Montana. Welcome to this week's edition of the show. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we're the co-hosts of The Dirt on the Past. This week, we are at the KGLT studios speaking in person with Leslie Gilmore about National Register nominations. So we are super excited to talk with our good friend, Leslie. Um, But first, Crystal, it's been a bit. Let's check in and find out how the last couple weeks were for you. It was good. You know, it just turned summer here in Montana. We are recording this on July 5th. Yes. And I swear, you know, the last couple days have been the first days. It was a cold July 4th. (laughs) Yeah, it was cold. It was cold. (laughs) So I'm so excited that summer has finally arrived. Mm. But we soldiered through June and we had a few nice days in there. But it was, it was, uh, it's nice to see some sunshine today. But we had a wonderful cemetery workshop that we did a couple, I guess that was just two weeks ago. Um, and it was just great. We did it in Deer Lodge, Montana, Very cool. which is a small town in Montana, and they have a beautiful cemetery. And so we had about 30, 35 people who came out and took the cemetery workshop, and we spent a day learning about the importance and history of cemeteries, uh, how to preserve headstones, and then uh, also about cemetery headstone symbolism. So it was really, really a great day and a great group of people. Were they mostly from Deer Lodge area? No, they were from all over Montana. We had some people come down from Malta, Montana. Yeah. Yeah. And from Bozeman and from Helena and Butte and a couple, you know, a few from Deer Lodge, but it was kind of from all over Montana. People came for the workshop, which was really great. We had some wonderful guest speakers, Ellen Baumler, who has been on our podcast before, and she wrote a book about cemeteries in Montana. And so she came and gave the lunchtime presentation. We had, um, we did it in conjunction with the Foundation for Montana History and also the Deer Lodge Museum Complex, the the old Montana prison complex. So those three entities kind of did this workshop together. So it was a really great partnership, and we um, hopefully educated a lot of people on the importance of cemeteries. So, nice. Yeah. Do you think you'll do more in other parts of the state? We, we hope to, yeah. So we've already started talking about what we want to do next June mm. and where, but mm-hmm. I, won't, I won't give that away oh quite boy. yet. Oh, boy. Stay tuned, folks. <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> so a different location with an awesome cemetery, another awesome cemetery. So. Cool. <laughs> but what about you, Nancy? Um, well, like you, it's been kind of waiting for summer to come, but there have been some gorgeous days in there. Got out to the Missouri River and actually got in it Good. completely up, well, up to my neck. My husband goes all the way under, but I don't. <laughs> um, but it's been busy, lots of tourists back in downtown and all of that, which has been really fun. And since Ian has come back from Columbia, we have started planning 
a uh, 10-day road trip through Montana, some parts wow. of the state we haven't been to. So we're heading all the way out first to Ekalaka. And um, have you spent much oh, time nice. out there? No, I haven't. But the Carter County Museum mm-hmm. has to be a stop when yeah. you guys go. Yeah. yeah. It's a small town. Yeah. But, you know, there's some amazing rock formations out there. And then there's um, kind yeah. of a pine forest reserve also out there. So we're going to spend a couple nights and then... We're going to um, head into Miles City and have like a cowboy saloon experience there, which you okay. and I have done a little yeah, bit of that before. Yeah, we've done that. <laughs> and then we're going to head to up sort of towards Fort Peck and then head along the north side of the Missouri River Breaks area where there's a lot of the Prairie Foundation Reserve and, and some of those bison herds. Yeah. And there's a lot of great places um, for birding, for um, just gorgeous prairie animal animal viewing, and then hopefully some swimming in the river. So okay. we're taking the dogs and we're just going to go for it. And nice. I hope to find a lot of, you know, historic towns, structures, things yeah. to visit, and some brew pubs that are popping up all over along the way. So yeah. that's kind of been what's on my mind is planning oh, a lot of that. Oh, that would be wonderful. I know. Well, I know. good. So okay. we should get back to Leslie and we find should. out about her summer, too. We should. But first, um, Nancy, I want to just talk about our sponsor for this episode. So a big thank you to the Montana State Historic Preservation Office which we commonly call the SHPO, for sponsoring this episode of The Dirt on the Past. The Montana SHPO works together with all of us, all Montanans, to promote the preservation of our state's historic and cultural places, from archaeological sites to homesteads. The Montana SHPO is responsible for protecting Montana's historic places and paleontological resources under the Montana Antiquity Act and assisting federal agencies when assessing the impact their actions will have on our wonderful historic places under the National Historic Preservation Act. So we are grateful for all that they do to protect and preserve our state's cultural heritage. So we thank them for sponsoring this episode of the Dirt on the Past. So, Leslie, we're so excited to have you here with us today. Yes, welcome. welcome. Yay. Thank you. Glad to be here. Fantastic. So, Leslie, we always start off by telling our listeners a little bit about our guest. So, here goes. Correct me if anything is wrong, and um, and then we can point the finger at Crystal since she uh, <laughs> and I'll point it right back at Leslie. Oh, there we go. So should be just fine. <laughs> Leslie Gilmore is a preservation architect who lives and works in Gallatin Gateway. She has written architectural record forms and National Register nominations for significant residential buildings, commercial buildings, schools, and parks. She's focused on mid-century modern buildings, hoping to advance the appreciation of these oft-misunderstood buildings. Her knowledge of historic architecture and materials is woven into her writing in these nominations, as well as in many of her articles in Bozeman Magazine. She currently serves on the boards of Preserve Montana, the Extreme History Project, and the Historic Preservation Board of Gallatin Gateway. So thanks, Leslie, for coming and bringing all that expertise. Yeah, and you know, Leslie, you've been a board member of the Extreme History Project for years, many years now, and you are not just a a regular old board member. You are an active board member, and you do so much to help us with the Extreme History Project. You um, do a lot of 
actual work for us. So I'll call you up and say, Leslie, can you help with this? And you always say yes. So thank you so much for everything that you do for Extreme History Project. And I know you're equally dedicated to Preserve Montana and to the Gallatin um, County School Trustees Board as well. So no, that's not quite right. The Gallatin um, School, the well, you say what is the it? Historic Preservation Histori- Board of Gallatin Gateway. That's it. That's right. what I was. Yeah. That was. That's what I was saying. And you've done a lot of work to preserve the historic school in Gallatin Ga- Gateway. And I th- guess that's probably what I was thinking about when mm-hmm. I was trying to get the school in there somewhere. But you've done so much work to preserve that school, and also to preserve um, so much, so a, a lot of other history in Gallatin Gateway as well. So which is great. So welcome. Thank you. So my first question always is, uh, what brought you to this work? What brought you to wanting to do historic preservation through the field of architecture? Right. Well, it's my father. I'm a daddy's girl. And he has had a profound influence on me. So when he grew up in Philadelphia, he used to drive around in high school with his friend Jim Massey, who turns out later to have been head of HABS, which is part of the National Park Service, the Historic American Building Survey. And in fact, when dad moved, first moved to Portland, Maine, he went into the clap house and he looked in the closet and there were drawings, HABS drawings, by his high school friend, Jim Massey. But he and Jim used to drive around the whole Philadelphia area and look at historic buildings. And dad did not go into architecture as Jim did, but he kept that. And we always had National Trust for Historic magazines in the house, Historic Preservation magazines. And when I was trying to figure out what to do, so I I, I merrily went off to school for math. I I realized in my bio, I I have no education. Clearly. (laughs) And and I was going to ask you about that because you would be the first guest we have that would be completely Completely uneducated, uneducated. which is fine. (laughs) But, you know, just curious. (laughs) No, but please do fill us in. It's not to discredit my education, but I think like a lot of people, your real education comes through your work and volunteer process. And that's really what it was for me. I mean, I have a, a, a bachelor's in math. Which does some good. In fact, yeah. um, it does, actually. Um, and then I have a master's in architecture. Uh, I, Even though I grew up in a family with a mother who was working and earned her Ph.D., I did not think that I could be an architect. And it was when I was graduating with my math degree yeah. that I thought, oh, you know, screw that. Maybe I can, you know. So I did go to school for architecture. Okay. But um, it was not on my agenda originally. Um, but most of my, I mean, my education has been for the, through these firms that I've worked with that have specialized in historic preservation. And I knew that was my interest because of dad and his encouraging me to do two Habs summers. Mm. So you can do, at, when I was in college, I did Two, no, three HAB summers. Okay. I was in Gettysburg for 12 weeks, and actually they extended that so that I could complete the documents because you do ink on mylar drawings oh, that are wow. according to the HAB yeah, standards. Can you, sorry, tell us what HAB stands for. Historic American Building Survey. Okay. It was founded, it was established in, the 19, in 1933 as a consortium with the National Park Service, the Library of Congress, and AIA, the American Institute of Architects. They were trying to get architects and architectural students working. Okay. So this they is needed way income. before, really, yeah. the This is way Register. before. Okay. Right, exactly. That's fascinating. I yeah. didn't actually know about that. And yeah. was it generally focused more on um, eastern cities? No. Okay. It's interesting because they worked very hard to not only have a geographic range, but to have a 
cultural and social range. So it wasn't just like the governor's mansion in New mm, Jersey. Mm-hmm. It was Kennebunk Mines Addits. I mean, you know, wow. nice and and other mine building and other, you know, small, I mean, like Bannock was, um, well, actually their Habs drawings were the 1960s, but it was still the, in the mindset of Habs to have a broad spectrum of our history. That was very visionary. It was very visionary. And it's since been um, uh, joined by the Historic American and Historic American Engineering Record. Okay. Which I can't remember what date, but that was um, a little later. And then even later, I think it was only maybe 20 years ago, the Historic American Landscape Survey. So there's Habs, Hare, and Hals. Okay. And they're all housed in the Library of Congress. Wow. And you can access a lot of them online. It's a great, what a great resource. resource. Wow. Right. Okay. So if I'm doing a project, and a lot, whether it's a restoration project or a national register, I'll often look up and see if there are HABS documentations about any buildings like that. Because it's not just drawings. They, they, they were hiring historians as well. So I did a summer in Gettysburg, right? They had these historians there that helped us understand why the, this farm building was of interest to, in this case, the Civil War battles that were going on in Gettysburg, but why why historically it was of interest. And I worked on the Lincoln Homestead, and there was a big deal, deal there about the type of framing in this shut house okay. we were documenting, uh-huh. and it was crossover between braced framing and um, um, balloon framing. So it was just, I mean, th- their historians came out and were so excited. <laughs> so different wow. technologies of construction as well as styles of construction as well as materials people were developing. or I mean, all exactly. of that. And, and so that the whole nails built environment. And oh, what would and when it would have been available wow. and, and what how it was sawn and, you know, the whole bit. So you were drawing while people were writing this up, and then that's all within that record? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen Hab's drawings, but I didn't quite understand there was documentation along with those. So that's good to know. Right. And sometimes there isn't. Okay. But that whole goal is to have that there as well. And we still do Hab's documentations to this day. Mm -hmm. And so we did one of the MDU building in Billings, which was the sweetest little I guess I'd call it um, streamlined, modern building from the 40s. And MDU stands for? Yeah. Montana, Dakota Utilities. Okay. okay. And, and GSA, the General Services Administration, was going to tear it down. So one of their review mitigation aspects was that they would have it documented by HABS. It's okay. considered a standard wow. by which to right. document, both historically, and they have a form that's very particular about what order and what type of things you provide in it. And then the standards for the drawing are incredibly exacting. Wow. Wow. So oftentimes if a structure is going to be torn down, they'll have this drawing done. But then even if it's not going to be torn down, if they just want to document it in some way, then yes. they have this done. So either or. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. Wonderful. What so a huge spend... database of information. Yeah. I, I imagine just getting lost in an archive like that. That sounds pretty fantastic. Wow. Yeah. wow. So you did that for two summers? Where were you? This Three, three summers. Three summers. So um, the first summer I was in Spring, is that right? Oh, gosh. 
Well, we're no, going to fact check summer. you later. Oh, no. Yes, you will. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. The first summer, I was in Mentor, Ohio at President Garfield's farming estate. Oh, so wow. we got to live in one of the tenant farmer houses, oh, cool. and we documented barns. And we had this great oh. woman, Annie Evans from England, who came from, you know, d- documenting buildings that were four or 500 years yes, old. Yes, I was going to say. And we're looking say, at these yeah. much younger buildings. But she had this system of a bucket of water and this little tube, a plastic tube, a clear plastic tube that we would carry around with us because water finds its own level. So we would be able to measure so we could develop a datum line with this water level. And we were climbing all over this carriage house roof (laughs) to be able to go from one datum line to the next to the next so that we could draw it accurately. The whole idea Mm -hmm. with HABS is very accurate so that you could rebuild it if indeed the building burned down. You could rebuild it from those drawings the next day as Kitty Wampus as the building was. Right. Oh, well, hopefully you wouldn't rebuild the Kitty Wampusness, no. but maybe you would. Yes, but maybe you would that's know it was there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I was thinking just as we're digging as archaeologists, we're always, because we're going down, we, we have this level above yes. the surface of the ground and you're you're measuring down from that. Or if you have standing architecture in the site, then you're measuring up. But yeah, you will always need a datum. And I never really yeah. thought about how they do that in right. historic. For well, and now you use lasers. Sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, right. yeah. Now. <laughs> so that was the first summer in Mentor, Ohio. Cats. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> the, the second summer was um, the Lincoln Historic Site in Springfield, Illinois. There's a two-block stretch wow. where they have removed buildings that were not there when Lincoln was inaugurated oh. as a president. And so um, there are gaps there. It's really bizarre. But the ones that are there, you know, he walked by, he saw, <gasps> he touched. Wow. Right. That's right. fascinating. That was great. Yeah. And um, and then Gettysburg. Yeah. Uh, my third summer was Gettysburg. And I got to stay on longer in order to finish some of the drawings oh, because, um, well, I don't know. They need. We needed more time to finish them. We did a lot of buildings that summer, and you get to meet people, oh, architecture from students from yeah. all over. Oh, yeah. how fun! It was, they were oh, really must have been good amazing. summers. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So that kind of in that that was between your um, bachelor's degree and your master's. No, let's see. I guess. Is I that must, what um, got no, you I interested in? Uh, well, that's what helped solidify okay, it. And okay. again, it was my dad who suggested this. He showed me uh-huh. this piece of paper with this ad, and why don't you call in or write? And mm-hmm. I was a little frustrated, though. And so I did this during my architecture training because okay. I actually went to architecture for five years. I started at the Illinois Institute of Technology in Chicago, went there for one and a half years, and then transferred over to the master's program at the University of Illinois at Chicago. So I spent five years doing this. Um, So I had, that's how I had three summers in there. And then the last summer, I ended up working at an architecture firm. But one of the reasons I did this HAB stuff was because I didn't want to go work in an office. Mm. And my dad said, well, you could be outside. You're literally doing field work. I was going to ask you this, Leslie. So when you decided that you would become an architect and work as an architect, were you really focused on working somewhere where you would continue that kind of field work versus being in a firm where you were developing new buildings for people, even if they were to sort of be in the style of a historic Mm -hmm. structure? So were you more in the aspects of firms that did documentation for some kind of historic preservation purpose? Generally, yes. but And they also, so I focused on those firms. That's who I just um, glommed onto. I would go, there was a man named Bill Hasbrook. I went and spoke with him a few times 
and then he finally gave me a job. Nice. Um, and he was in the Chicago area, but um, he and he did more. He does more like what a full historic preservation firm does. So he did documentation. He we restored the Dana Thomas House in Springfield, Illinois, which wow. is one of Frank Lloyd Wright's early oh. prairie school buildings. Wow. And that's right after I left Gettysburg. I went to Springfield, Illinois, to be the on-site observing architect for Bill at the Dana Thomas House. Wow. So he, you know, from, I think you call it from the frying pan into the fire, something <laughs> like that. And that was my education. Wow. Um, yeah, that's when you really, really started learning. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And they also did, um, let's see, they um, uh, something called historic structure reports, which is like a National Register nomination on steroids. You also talk about the condition of the building and what types of things you can do to re- um, either restore, preserve, or renovate the building and what your recommendations are material-wise. Wow. I'm, yeah. I'm so interested in how, and, and that's a good segue into our next question, but I'm, I'm just also thinking somewhere along the line I want to ask you about the kind of documentation you're talking about with, with HABs versus sort of if you also had the original blueprint. So let me just put the blueprint question on the back burner and get right to that National Register of Historic Places, National Register nominations that you've been talking about because you have been involved in um, filling out the forms needed to get something onto the National Register of Historic Places. So let's just start with, um, tell us about maybe the first time you did one and and how many you've done. And if, and if there's one in particular that stands out, maybe your first one was really boring and you want to skip over that. But <laughs> I'll, I'll just turn it back over to you. My first one was really exciting. And oh. it was in the Chicago area. They have I mean, that's amazing architecture in that city. Absolutely, absolutely. And I was working for a man named John Eifler who met this black woman named Diane Heath. And she had bought this nice sandstone building on Martin Luther King Drive. And we started working on the building. Turns out, though, it was built in 1888, designed by Martin Roche, who was of Hollerburton Roche, who was a big firm, the the largest architecture firm in Chicago. And he had designed this building for his brother-in-law, John Tate. And so we thought, oh, we've got a National Register nomination here. And I don't think she she wasn't going for tax credits because you can't she wasn't renting the building out. It wasn't an income thing, but it was a matter of pride for her. She, when she realized the importance of this building, and it was a lovely, lovely building. And John Tate, the brother-in-law, was a stonemason. And so the fact that they used this red sandstone from Michigan, I mean, it was all just, you know, the the pieces all fell together beautifully. And John Tate lived there with his brother-in-law. I mean, Martin Roche lived there with his brother-in-law, John Tate. He wasn't, Martin never married, and so he lived with his sister and Mm brother-in-law. And so we went to nominate the building, right? And um, we go to the Historic Sites Advisory Council, which is their statewide version of our Montana Review Board. And they said, gosh, you could go for more than just architecture. You should be going for the con- the, 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 um, the history of steel construction in Chicago. Because <laughs> oh I hadn't, here I am an architect, but I hadn't thought about the fact that the fact that they were using steel beams in this residential building in 1888 was actually part of, it was kind of a big deal. Pretty innovative. And so it huh? is, it was okay. innovative. And we were just going for architecture and the relationship to Martin Roche and that whole big deal right. with its history, essentially. Not, I mean, so we're really going more for history than for the yeah. architecture and construction methods. And that's when I found that, I'm not going to say spin a yarn, but it's how you 
I mean, you can approach a National Register nomination in a number of ways, and it can be a number of criteria. And sometimes, and they seem these days to be aiming for more criteria, the more criteria, the better. Mm, yeah. So they we'll really- talk about that, what yeah, criteria okay. is. And they really bit, wanted yeah. us to go for two criteria. <laughs> yeah. And that's harder work. You have to oh, do more yeah. research. You have to tell another story. And it, But it still was my favorite, partly because Diane Heath was a great client. Yeah. Martin Roche was an awesome architect. And it was just a great story. Right. And we really enjoyed it. It was my first. And it was, you know, you get up before the review board. You give a slideshow. You have to defend your case yeah, and kinda... answer all sorts of questions, including, well, why didn't you include criteria C? <laughs> <laughs> and so we we should we should discuss yeah. for listeners, yeah. you know, as you were talking about the criteria, what it takes to be nominated as a historic structure, and then why that's important, what it does. So I'll, I'll toss it back to you, Crystal, too, if you want to refine that question. And, and um, yeah, and and maybe maybe what we could do is we could just Leslie, you could just talk about the process for listing a property or a building or a residence on the National Register, and then we'll kind of dive down deeper from there. How does that sound? Okay, that okay. sounds good. But I do want to come back, maybe before we do that, we can come back and talk about, so your first one was amazing. What other National Register nominations have you done um, throughout the country? Right, it that, turns Maybe out- the top two. Sure, but it turns out I've only done five. Okay, well, and one state-wide um, national or state nomination in Kansas because they have a whole different system. But I've done you know the Tate Heath House, Scoville Park, which was a historic district in Oak Park. Okay, the, in in Chicago. In Chicago, okay. uh, just outside of Chicago, um, the Gunderson Historic District, which was a two hundred home suburban. Development, wow. which represented the pattern of suburban development throughout the states, unbeknownst to me, That's until we started the project. Wow. And these beautiful four squares, lovely, lovely buildings. It's a real pride to live in a Gunderson house. The things um, you learn when you're doing these. Oh, I mean, and the and the, what you add to the historical record when you're creating these historic right. nominations is right. huge. Yeah, right. And you have to really. I mean, you like for the Gunderson. Historic district. We had started it we, as a volunteer effort. We gathered a bunch of volunteers and historians and architects and photographers in Oak Park and did a survey of these four by two blocks of these buildings because we kind of thought there might be something here. Well, there was a lot there. And the advertising that the firm did, and it was right on the train line to Chicago, how they oh, yeah. got people to, ooh, you can buy your own home. Big deal. And this really was a movement across the country, though, and so it was good for the Shippo's office in that case to let us know that. I mean, I'm I'm not a historian, yeah, and even historians need help, yeah, and that's what the state historic preservation offices are great for, helping you understand the context and why that would even be important or, um, you know, nominatable. But you can also I should. Zero in on. You can nominate for um, local significance. So that Gunderson district might have just been significant locally. Okay. Or it might have been significant on a statewide level or a national level. And I always figure if you're getting important, you know, significant enough on a national level, maybe you should be looking at a national That's historic a landmark, landmark, which is a yeah. whole mm. another upper echelon. Mm. But um, you have different ways of being um, uh significant. And significant, typically the building or buildings are older than 50 years old. And that's so that we have 
a bit of a chance to step back mm. and understand the mm-hmm. history. There are some certainly, you know, like Dulles National Airport that are not, and the St. Louis Arch that are nominated early because it's mm. so, so clear that they are landmarks already. Right. I can't remember where we were so, going from there, so, so you ask. Okay, yeah. so the one that I wanted you also to talk about is that you were part of the nomination of the Montana State University campus. No, so, I wasn't oh. actually part of that. Oh, okay. um, I was so I've okay. nominated five properties okay. to the okay. National Register, um, and one of them was actually in Montana, the Batten, the Federal Batten Building in Billings, right. which we just you just nominated that, right? last September. Um, but I've been on, I was for eight years on the Illinois Review Board for National Register nominations. Okay. And then when we moved to Montana, I got a call within a year or two to ask me to, to apply to be on Montana's Review Board. So I was on that Review Board for eight years. And John Axline and I both went out crying the oh. day they kicked oh. us off because you're so summarily kicked off the board. You know, <laughs> your two terms are up. You're out of here. And he and I started the same day oh. and we ended oh. the same day and we were in tears because yeah. you get to read all those nominations. You get to see the people that are either the owner a steward in some way or the person and the person writing the nomination and you learn so mm. much. And John Axline is the Montana Department of Transportation historian. So. Right. We call him the grand recuser because he Put to get, put forth so many nominations for bridges yeah. for a Montana and Department so that he would not be able to, to vote, vote exactly. on his own. So you right. actually have to vote whether they're getting in or not. I want right. to back up just yeah. a second. When you were talking about the neighborhood in Chicago that you were doing, or outside of Chicago, the suburban neighborhood, the Gunnerson um, houses. You said it was a volunteer effort, so I just want to ask about how these things get started. Did was did the city ask you or the county to do it, or was it the, uh, a place that you and some other people thought, well, there's probably some historic significance here, and start? How did that project even come to be? Where right. it ended up in a and nomination? you're right. You're right about describing all those different ways mm. it could. And this was a volunteer effort that started when we were on the Historic Preservation Commission, and we decided that. Like a lot of places, like Bozeman, right this very minute, the more we know about what we have, the more we can determine what regulations we might need, what we might need to try and save. And we hadn't had a historic district nomination in Oak Park since the Frank Lloyd Wright district and the Ridgeland district. Let's see, those would have been in the early 90s. So um, we determined as a preservation commission that we needed to do a survey. Was that a city commission? or It was a village commission. Okay, village. And the village, though, gave us money to hire an intern from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago's Historic Preservation Program. So Suzanne German came on board and helped us with the survey and with the actual nomination itself. That's right. And uh, we got, you know, the camera um, society, what, what the camera club of Oak Park or something went around to taking photos oh, for cool. us. Yeah, wow. yeah. Um, but when we did the actual nomination itself, the city, the village, paid us. I don't remember how much. You know, maybe they didn't pay us, but they paid Suzanne. Huh. Okay. It was a huge effort, though, because we wow. were trying to do it on a database. This is all before databases really right. were sophisticated enough, and we wanted to tie the photos into the database. Wow. Nice. They have since kind of done that, right, but right. whoa, Ooh, 
So that's a huge one. So, so far, you've given you, you the examples you've given us are a house, a residence, mm-hmm. a subdivision. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And, and right. then the, the one you just recently did in September in Billings, that was um, a commercial building? Um, the federal, Batten Federal, federal Building. Federal Billings, building. The okay. city has bought it. Uh-huh. It was a general services federal building that they okay. built in 1965 or finished it in 63, designed by um, Link. J.G. Link, you know, son of Link, of son of Link, right? Well, J.G. Link was a huge architect throughout Montana, and okay. his son, um, is, which carried his name, um, designed it okay. in, in the 1960s. And okay. um, they built it um, according to the federal guidelines, and, you know, it's a really standard federal building, okay. although I just have to say, I, and I never use this word, it's prettier. Than the one in Bozeman. It's just more refined. Mm-hmm. The detailing is superb. In what time period was it built? So it was finished in 1963, so it's mid-century modern. Yeah. It very much follows in with the guiding principles that GSA was mandating across the country that um, President John F. Kennedy was supportive of and, and pushing forward so that we would have good design, efficient design, and ideally efficient buildings. And there are a lot of similarities between a lot of those buildings, but they're also meant to have a regional aspect to them. So they hire mm-hmm. somebody local, but he would have had to work within the regulations of what the federal government had set. Right. Out. Okay, super mm. interesting. So you do get that local and then national right. combination. Exactly. Okay. And including local artists. Mm. Uh, Lyndon Pomeroy, who is the father-in-law of um, um, Pomeroy, our uh, city commissioner. Oh, okay. um, She married yeah, yeah, yeah. his son. Oh, okay. He was oh. an artist in Billings. And he designed this and constructed this beautiful steel mural, three-dimensional thing about the history of Montana in that building. It's absolutely beautiful. And it will still be in the building um, with the studio. Do you know what they're going to use it for? It's going to be a major focus in a new stair hall, uh, open stair hall that they're building. Okay. It'll nice. be, you'll see it even more than you did in the original lobby. Nice. Oh, wow. That's okay. Fantastic. So I guess I wanted you to talk about the project you worked on just so people can get a sense mm-hmm. that it's not just houses that are on the National right. Register, but all these different buildings and even subdivisions and bridges and, you know, all these things that we'll, we'll probably talk a little bit more about. So now maybe you can just kind of go through that process of listing a property on the National Register, kind of in a nutshell. In a nutshell, you yeah. call John Bowden at the State Historic Preservation Office and run your scenario by Here in him. Montana. Here in Montana. Anyway, so every, yeah. but every, every state Every SHPO has, has a National Register coordinator. Okay. Right. And their job, and most of them do it, really seriously, is to bend over backwards to help you have a successful case. Okay. Fantastic. And if you don't, I mean, if the building really, if you're just off your rocker in terms of thinking that it might be significant for some reason, they will tell you. But they will work really hard to find a reason for significance. I mean, ideally, and at this point, as a professional, you come to them with a reason, a rationale. But I could be, I've I've seen these nominations. I could be a rancher outside of Miles City and determine that my my family's homestead should be listed. I call John and he will make it happen. (laughs) And and so you might accept a, quote, lesser nomination. It might not be as polished professionally mm-hmm. but if it's written from the heart and from that family it goes such a long way so anyone can can if they have a house or a structure or a commercial building or a or something that they think should be on the national register they can call their state 
entity, their state SHPO, and ask about it and see if it's viable. Absolutely. And oftentimes it is, it sounds like. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. What if the individual who's interested in having it done, say it is a rancher with a structure on their property that's been around for, um, you know, over a century, what if they don't want to do the work themselves, but they'd like it to be done? Are there resources that the SHPO can give them of someone who might be able to help? Absolutely. Okay. SHPO has a list of, of um, people who would do that work. Right. Uh-huh. And we've got some great historians and National Register nominators in mm-hmm. this state. And they, really they would they be someone you pay as a consultant, or might they do it out of the goodness of their heart, or it just depends? It depends. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I know that... Um, I love to do architectural descriptions. I love to weave this story about the structure and materials mm. and all that about the building. If Whether it's significant for the building or for history, I still like to weave that story. I will do that for other people on a volunteer basis. I've done that for John. I've done that for a woman named Joan Brunell who does – she's out of Absorki or, you know, the Stillwater uh, area. Yeah. 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 And so I'll do that for people just because – it's fun. You enjoy mm-hmm. that. And there are other people that do aspects of that. So sometimes it might not be that the whole nomination sure. is a volunteer effort. Because it, okay. it is a professional effort. There's no question. And yeah. there's a real learning curve to learning where to go. It's like, you know, historians, they, are, they can blow your mind with what they can find, how they find it, where they find it, what they put together. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and they can save you a lot of time because learning how to do that. So getting back mm-hmm. to kind of the in a nutshell thing. So we've gotten that you call, you got the idea, you call there, they'll bend over backwards to help you. But are you then given a packet that is the basic form and instructions that yes. you'd have to follow. And that's where you're saying there's a lot that goes into that that might require research. Right. Not just taking a photograph of the structure on your property and describing right. it. Okay. Right. And it's taking the right type of photographs and labeling them a very, very specific way. And the the, the rationale for that is that the, that the National Park Service, who essentially is the keeper of mm. all these okay. nominations, they wanted, from day one, they wanted to be able to develop a rational database. And so the terminology, the category of building, the subcategory, it all has to fall within their specific language. And if it doesn't, you say other and you mm. find another phrase that deals with that. Stylistically, it's the same thing. Okay. And the way they want the descriptions to be addressed and the way they want you to tell the story of significance and why the building is significant. And that goes to your other question earlier about the criteria upon which a building can be considered yes, significant. Yes, let's dive into that. Right. So I, I, it's like ABCD. Okay. And I, I put it down to ABCs to make it as simple as possible so that I don't forget because it's easy enough to forget. So A is for some A history. A history happened to, you know, I mean, um, sure. it, the, yeah. the history that the building weaves and is part of. And then mm-hmm. B, of course, I'm going to have to look this up. Oh, it's for a person. So if um, John Bozeman built this house and lived in it, or um, Samuel Lewis yeah. built that house, um, it might be significant for the person who built it and their role in the community. And it's not going to be the every George Washington slept here building. Right. I remember seeing okay, a number of buildings a... that, well, he slept here, but yeah, he slept over here as well. Right. And this is when he was planning his, you know, attack against, you know, the um, 
um, British over here. So that's why it's more significant. Okay. So there is an echelon of um, Like if an author was like, I, you know, was in the cabin in this woods, and that's when I wrote this novel that went on to become famous. That would be more significant than just, you know. Right. Than just some hotel he stayed at Periodically for went into the woods. Okay. Right. Gotcha. Right. right. And then um, C is for um, characteristics of construction, whether it's mm. architecture or sure. um, the structure of it. And that's where that. You know, that steel beam and the yeah. um, Tate House yeah. came in. Um, so whether you yeah. can see it or not, it might be something about the manner of construction, the materials used. Or it could it be right. a particularly great example of, you know, an Art Nouveau design or exactly. something like that. When I was on the review board in Illinois, I thought, oh, my gosh, how many Italianate houses are we going to see? Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out that an Italianate house, like if it's the only one in Belleville, Illinois, can be significant locally. And a very, very similar Italianate building can be significant in Springfield, Illinois. And so um, it's it's not just that it's significant worldwide or even nationally. So mm-hmm. every town can have their significant buildings. What is that one on College Avenue and um, Fifth Street that's it's yellow and it looks like it's something out of Europe, and it, it actually has the whole half of the block behind it. Oh, oh! are you talking about the Second uh, Empire one that Fred yeah. Wilson designed, yeah. right? The, the um, Graff House. House. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. that Second Empire. And mm-hmm. and so the one, I mean, it has all these little doors and windows and, yeah. and, and things, yeah. and it used to have a swimming pool in the yeah. back, I hear. Right. So mm-hmm. that, um, would that be something, because it's such an unusual particular style, was that something the owners commissioned, and so that would be something possible? It to... easily could be. Okay. And I think it probably will end up being part of the multiple property yeah. documentation form that your preservation board in Bozeman is doing for Fred Wilson right. designs. Right. Okay. Yeah. Right. But it, even still, it could probably be individually listed. And But that there is a point to that, though, that if you're listed in a district, so take one of those Gunderson buildings, um, it is still considered as good as individually listed by being contributing to a historic district as it's as significant as if it had been individually listed in the National Register and has accorded all the same benefits and harms that don't exist as any individually listed. And we'll get get to that, but let's finish you. We we went through A, B, and C. Let's get to D. And then D is one that I don't deal with too often unless I'm on a review board. It's archaeology. And it's the findings that have already been um, found or that they think could are likely to be found Mm. when you start getting into doing any sort of exploration of the actual site. Like the building that, the site that's to the east of your Extreme History Project building. Yes, that is a parking lot. But we know that, and it's a cement parking lot, it was capped after very significant buildings were torn down. So we know it's an archaeological treasure trove under there, you know, of of early Bozeman history. That was like that vacant lot in Virginia City that we did with the field school, where people were just parking on it next to a building. There was no longer a building there. We knew from photographs that there had been. But as soon as you scrape the surface in some areas, oh my goodness, yeah. And you're not going to go around scraping the surface of everything. You mentioned that you do have clues. There were some photographs. There will be some oral history. When you were looking at Fort Parker, a lot of history written and oral that led you to believe, oh, this and this could be nominated for a a D criteria. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So so let's ask now why. Why do people want to or do um, in that sense? What does it afford um, when you say 
any one of the houses, the Gunderson houses within that whole district would have the same, what is it, protections? What is it that you get by mm-hmm. being a significant, be having that, that official significance? You don't get any protection mm-hmm. unless um, it's a federally owned or federally funded project. Okay. So there's a highway that's kind of south of the Gunderson district. If they wanted to expand that highway and go further north, <laughs> well, the, if the buildings were federally owned or had some federal funding, then a Section 106 review would have to be done. And um, the IDOT at that point, similar to our MDOT, would have to at least consider the fact that they might be tandy, tearing down or removing historically significant right, structures. Right. Okay. Now, in Oak Park, though, they actually have a program that we had in Bozeman for a while. It was a tax freeze assessment. And the fact that those buildings were in a National Register district opened them up to the benefit of a tax freeze assessment. And in that case, they could freeze their taxes, say say it's the year 2023, freeze them for 12 years, actually totally for eight years. And so you freeze the value of the house, you can improve upon it, and you don't get taxed for the improvements that the value that that is accrued by your improving your property until year nine, and it it incrementally increases the value till year 12 when you're the value that you are after your improvements. So So definitely a a tax benefit. Absolutely. Right. And there are a number of states that have tax freeze assessments like that. And it doesn't Mm -hmm. preclude you from doing something to the structure. Right. Now, when you are getting a benefit like that, you do follow the Secretary of the Interior's guidelines for the preserv- for the treatment of historic properties. And you might or might not have your local Historic Preservation Commission review the work. Typically, the state reviews the work. Sometimes the local commission is a sort of go-between. So that. you could potentially lose that tax benefit if you altered the structure too much, not in accordance with its historic nature, or did some improvements that, you know, really... Right. If you did a large addition to the front of the house, Uh you're not going to get that tax benefit. And that's similar for the historic preservation tax credits, which um, commercial properties and rental properties um, can get. So that's another benefit. Exactly. Huge benefit. Yeah. Uh, So for this um, federal Batten building um, in um, Billings, um, I don't even remember the millions that they're putting into the building, but they're getting a 20% tax credit. That's huge. From yeah. the government for the, for income tax and 5% from the state. And you might say, but aren't they a tax-free entity, the city? They are, but they are syndicating. They're selling the tax credits to a buyer, and they will buy them for like 90 cents on the dollar. So someone else will oh, get the tax credit. Interesting. Okay. And they're going to make money off that right. then. Okay. Right. Hmm. Fascinating. Okay. So is and and anyone can get those tax credits, private or federal. Right, as long as you're an income producing property. And so it so, has to be income producing. So right. it has and I to think be you commercial. Have to, like if you're yeah, so um, the Masonic Temple building could have gone for tax credits. Um, they decided not to for various reasons, but any building downtown so the given US that Bank it's in a building that US they're Bank redoing. building that you were talking mm-hmm. about with Pete, it yeah. might be getting tax credits. Okay. I don't know. Okay. So the private residential houses can just get that frozen assessment which really helps them. If their state and city have that. And Bozeman okay. used to have that. We don't, don't have you that don't anymore. Have it anymore. Anymore. No, okay. that's I, a shame. I, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, but that's what a city commission can um, pass if they want mm-hmm. to, you know, and and they can put it into the city code. So that's a real benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
Um, but if you're just a residential owner, if you own a house that's historic and it's put on the National Register, you can't get those tax credits. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. And we do, we're starting to have more grants available in Montana. And there's the Montana Historic Preservation Grants from the Department that are managed by the Department of Congress. And that's the biennial, meaning every other year, um, grants that the legislature actually votes on. Okay. Which is a little bizarre because the Department of Commerce and SHPO rank the buildings in terms of um, their priority or, or their their worthiness of receiving the grant. And this year, they doled out like $11 million to yeah. all 42 or 44 properties. Granted, they changed some of the dollar amounts, and they removed some properties because of some kind of new guidelines that are sidebars, the legislator, mm-hmm. legislators okay. called it, for wanting to make sure that these were publicly accessible buildings mm. so that we all could benefit sure. from that So credit. the armory building, which mm. that thing sat there for over a decade when I got here, and then now it's this beautiful, they've built up to make it a hotel, but they preserved that base of it. That would have been something also eligible for maybe those kinds of um, the same thing as the federal building in Billings, maybe tax credits that... Probably doubtful. To build something that large, that's such an obvious change to it, even though, and some people... Even preservationists will argue this, and there is kind of a debate going on in the preservation world right now about how strict should we be? Mm -hmm. We want to allow a little more leniency. When you look at the armory, yes, you can see what it was originally, and so that's where someone might have an argument for that, but I still think that in this day and age, you would not be able to get tax credits because you've made too big a change. too much of a change, and the the interior is completely changed, and Mm -hmm. then you've built it up to a multi-story building. Okay, interesting. Wow, wow. Mm -hmm. Still, I'm glad they saved that base. I think it's beautiful. Absolutely. It's made for a gorgeous hotel downtown. Right, right, right. Yeah. Right. yeah. So, so there are, and in other states, there's other incentives. Some states, some towns have different incentives, right. tax credit or grants or different things for buildings that are listed on the National Register. Right. You yeah. know, I mentioned that one in Kansas where um, they get the federal credit of 25%. I think the state is like 35%. Oh, wow. That's huge. Yeah. Okay, absolutely. That's we, big support. We yeah. it's good we're getting this out there because yeah. maybe we can start talking to our legislature. Yes. We're going <laughs> to um, continue that thought right after a station break. You are listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Crystal Alegria and Nancy Mahoney on KGVM Bozeman or wherever you find your podcasts. We're speaking today with Leslie Gilmore about the National Register of Historic Places program. So, that's Fascinating. So from state to state, there's really quite a significant difference in what benefits you might be able to access if you put something on the register. In other cases, you had mentioned that um, sometimes it's it's a point of pride wanting that documentation, somebody moving into a residence or or wanting a whole neighborhood and a district. Um, So talk a little bit um, more about the the whole role um, that the National Register nomination process takes, not only with regard to the SHPO, the State Historic President Office, but the federal keeper. Right. You present the nomination to the review board along with the staff who writes a report of support or not. Typically, at oh, that point, they're the SHPO writes their own. Right. Okay. Right. And they look for letters from owners. So let's see, if you're a historic district, you have to have at least 51% of the owners support it. So they, the SHPO sends out letters to the people in that potential district. 
And um, if you're, say, we're nominating the Galton Gateway School, Mm -hmm. um, it's a publicly owned building, so they don't necessarily have to have the school board accept the nomination or even support it. Although they do, I'm very happy to say. That's great. Um, But uh, so they don't, the keeper does not have to have that support, although our SHPO does not like to submit nominations that don't have owner support. And if the keeper does get it, they will probably not list it, but they'll call it eligible so the keeper, and leave it at that. the keeper is at the national level. Keeper is at the national level. And so once it is um, reviewed by the review board, the review board, there's a motion that says, I move that we pass this nomination on to the keeper. Okay. It's something simple like that. And um, our state people send it on to the keeper. And within 45 days, they have to rule on it and say yes or nay. Okay. So if they say yes, do they mail you those cool plaques? That no, the for? plaques are part of the, the but I'm so glad you mentioned yeah, the plaques because yeah. our State Historic Preservation Office has a signed program. Oh, and okay. Alan Baumler used to be in charge of it, and now Christine Brown is. Yeah. And I think you pay like 50% of what the plaque actually costs. It's a bronze plaque. It's a standard size. They do an even better history of it that is a great synopsis that goes yes. on the plaque. Yes. And if you're individually, your building is individually listed or uh, in a national register historic district you can get a plaque and you can have it mounted on a post in your yard or you can have it adhered to the building wow wonderful wonderful to have you could have Mm -hmm. one on the masonic temple building and who writes you keep talking about that so i think we gotta talk about that building i'm plugging it yes i know i'm hearing (laughs) that we should get that out there um and and who writes that lovely synopsis that would be in this case christine brown okay and (laughs) sometimes she can with more recent nominations she can probably pluck it and massage it, craft it pretty quickly from a current nomination. But if you look at a nomination from 1984, which, say, for all of Bozeman's Main Street Historic District is four or five pages long, you need a little more mm, context mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. it. So she'll do more research, and she'll pull it together. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Okay, yeah. fantastic. So that's that's kind of a separate step, but how exciting, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. That, that is to get. And it is so fun to see those at certain places around town. Yeah, they're always really fun to see. And, they're, yeah. and, and we don't have enough of them in Bozeman. I don't think we have enough of them throughout the whole country. So um, I, I always encourage people to to try to list their house or their building on the National Register. So, and, and we have to do that. Um, I have to practice what I preach and try to get our building, our Extreme History building, on the National Register, too. Yes. Yeah. You've got a good story there. We do. We have a really right. good story. Great <laughs> so, story. A great I know. story. So, so we've been talking about that for a while, but I think we just need to go ahead and do that. And get I'd be that. happy to help you with Thank that. Thank you, Leslie. You're welcome. <laughs> I'll be calling you. <laughs> That's great. So, um, so our yeah. yeah. What I was going to ask is, you had mentioned before that the our state now has grants. You said something like they handed out eleven million or something. Where can people find out about where? And you said it's every other year. Right. Granted, not to make a bad pun, but <laughs> how do you find out where those grant resources are available and how to apply for them? Do you know? The State Historic Preservation Office and Preserve Montana, okay. our statewide preservation organization, both of them have documents that list what grants are available. And there are some very specific grants that are available that um, might not apply for your building, but they'll apply for another. So it's always worth looking at those lists. Okay. 
Okay, so there yeah. may be some specific things. You might have something that there we don't have enough of them preserved, mm-hmm. and so they've decided to make that a priority and offer a right. grant for it. Okay, right. fascinating. And the, and the State Historic Preservation Office has those grants also listed on their website, yeah. and, and those in tax incentives and all that information listed on their website too. So All right, so, yeah. so I know people are often, uh, it's the same thing with saying, gosh, you don't want someone to find any archaeology on your land. People get nervous that the government is going to take your land. Mm-hmm. Something's going to happen. You can't do anything to your house. We've touched on this a little bit. But um, what does a listing on the National Register do in terms of affecting property owners' rights and responsibilities? So are there any specific restrictions on alterations or renovations, um, selling the property, anything like that? Generally, no, unless you're using federal funding or you're on federal land for whatever reason. Let's just say that again. Generally, no. Generally, no. For private individuals. Right, for private individuals. Um, And even for the Gallatin Gateway School. We reviewed this with them because the school board was very concerned about how they might tie Mm. their hands or the hands of future school boards. And um, so we were able to tell them generally, no, unless you had a historic preservation review board or commission locally that had any sort of binding review power, which is actually very unusual. Even in Oak Park, we did not have binding review unless it had been listed as an Oak Park landmark, which is we only had like nine. So um, Gallatin Gateway does not have a review board. Gallatin County has a historic preservation board, but they don't review properties. Um, Bozeman has their historic preservation review board, which um, or their advisory board. I don't think they do reviews, but the staff does reviews. And, and those, I don't know if those are considered binding or not, mm-hmm. because yeah. I, I've seen very crystals saying, no, they're not binding. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. that's the only time when I mean, at different points yeah. in time they have been right but right now they are not okay so, yeah right. so private property is pretty much private property even if it's listed on the national register is yes. that correct yes Leslie? yes yeah you can pretty much still do anything you want to do right but if you tear down a house in in bozeman anyway there are mm. there are fines if you okay. if you tear down a house in a historic preservation district there are there is a fine but most of the time you can do anything else you want to do. Okay. And is the fine only if it's, um, what if it had been rebuilt, a rebuilt house? It wasn't It wasn't a, a structure from the era of that historic district um, originally. Mm-hmm. Do you know? If, does I don't that, know. Yeah, yeah, that's a little bit of a fine detail. Yeah. But in other words, if it's a historic structure consistent with the reason that district was nominated as a historic district, Mm -hmm. then you can't just tear it down without... uh, Could you get, potentially, if you petition our city board? Yeah, you can get a demolition permit. Okay, so you can't just do it, though, without asking... You can't do it without getting permission, and and you can get a demolition permit. Okay. So, um, like the armory we were talking about earlier, Mm -hmm. they did get a demolition permit, granted, but they decided not to demolish. Right. And... Um, in the long run, they didn't. Thank goodness, because that's Which a beautiful is wonderful. building. Yeah, you know, it's fantastic. But, but you can get a demolition permit. Okay. And that's where some of that review comes in okay. with the Historic Preservation Advisory Board, is with demolition permits. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, um, but, but generally, um, but 
you know, I think also in certain towns and communities that really depend on their um, historic preservation districts, um, those cities do have stricter guidelines. Um, like, you know, I can't think of a good example right now. Maybe you can. Well, there say, are some good examples. Yeah. I mean, um, Savannah and Charleston. Savannah, Georgia, have yeah. Right. I was yeah. going to say there's some of these cities yeah. people flock to because they have these amazing historic right. districts, right? So they right. have much stricter guidelines. But here in here in, in Montana, ours are a little bit looser. Right. Well, it's always hard when you're talking about private property rights. But the deal is, get this, Meg Klinko in Oak Park owned the Thomas Gale House. 1909, Frank Lloyd Wright House. Wow. Standard kind of cantilevering yeah. Balconies with you know rough rough textured stucco. She applied for a permit to install um, vinyl siding all over that house, and she got the permit, which is what started the whole preservation movement in Oak Park because oh. she got a permit to do this. And oh. like you, you've got to be kidding. Vinyl siding on a Frank Lloyd Wright right. building. And was, I can't even was, envision I know, I know. it. Actually, it would be very hard to install. But anyway, <laughs> she was trying to make a point. Oh, that you could I do see. this even in a town I that see. you would assume. Oh, wow. I mean, there are 25 plus mm, Frank Lloyd Wright structures, mm-hmm, including mm-hmm. his home and studio in Oak Park. Okay. You would assume there's a strong historic preservation ordinance. Right. And in 1994, I think, is when she applied for this permit, there was not. Mm-hmm. So there are ways to make a point yeah. and to get movement. Right, right, right. Exactly. right. Yeah. exactly. But it is it is an interesting point for sure that. Um, the benefits and the upsides, yeah. you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. not necessarily a tax benefit or this or that. But what we're, when we're talking about reasons that people can have thriving communities where they can live, but also there's commerce. I think Bozeman's downtown is one of these places people love to come because the downtown is completely occupied with these wonderful businesses, restaurants, things. It has such character to it. People right. really enjoy that. Yeah. And those are places I know I enjoy visiting. So many people do. You're doing walking tours. All of these things. It is, I mean, those property values um, rise. They, they go do. up. But there then the studies, businesses yeah. benefit too. Mm-hmm. So so there's kind of that bigger scheme, not necessarily mm-hmm. a direct. And it's, it's so lovely to be seeing not only the Armory example, but the U.S. Bank being uncovered mm-hmm. and people really honoring that, keeping the character of downtown here. Right. So it feels in our community, even though we don't have have these strict ways to um, necessarily protect or restrict or even and offer uh, such tangible benefits that people move here and buy here because they value right. historic preservation that is going on. Right. And, you know, I don't remember the year, but when Courtney Kramer was our historic preservation officer, she was working hard with MDOT to get signs on the highway that mm. would say Bozeman Historic District because there are people who drive yes. around all over the country and yep. if there's a historic district they stop. I They'll love seeing in. those brown yeah. signs that yeah. are right. like historic point something yeah. here. I know. Yeah. I look for those all right. the time. Right. That, that and a lot lovely. of people do and they so do. that really is an economic boon to the communities well, we that should, have them. Right. We should take that up. And we, we, it, they're up now. They're she's up, they're okay, up. good. She's okay, got them up. It took, it took a long time. It took a she, long time, but she, she fought for it and she got them up. Yeah. And then there are places like, I think they're called the Elkhorn Ranch, which mm. is down in Gallatin um, Canyon. And um, I remember them coming to nominate their old ranch 
And I was like, well, that's interesting. They they were doing it as a source of pride, and I see it now as on their advertisements mm-hmm. on their website. Right. We're a historic. We're, we're listed in the National Register of Historic mm-hmm. Places. That to them is an advertisement mm-hmm. that yeah. would entice people, and it does entice people. It does. It mm-hmm. definitely does. I think yeah. people, especially coming to Montana, you do love that. Especially, I mean, we've talked about this with yeah. Yellowstone, yeah. and then you know, yeah. 1923 and 1883. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but just to have a sense of yeah. that landscape, how it looked when you were talking about Lincoln and having the buildings yeah. that he would have walked by or in. Right. Mm-hmm. I think people do really appreciate that. And yeah. it and it should be a point of pride. And it's it's nice to hear that those things are happening out there and that people don't experience a downside to the nomination. It turns into something that's really an asset. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It sure is. Yeah. And, and houses that are located in um, historic districts, their property values tend to increase. Um, you know, maybe you can talk a little bit about that too, Leslie. Well, the National Trust has done a lot of those studies yeah. um, that look at the value of those properties mm. and do they increase because you're in a historic district? And they do. Mm. But now that there, there are disparities, though, and one of the things that we're trying to deal with as a as a field right now is the social inequities. And you know, sometimes those property values increase too much, where other people cannot afford to buy or to stay there. Mm-hmm. And so we have some rectifying to do in that regard, mm-hmm. I think. But the studies show very clearly that the property's value, values rise, which also means, though, that the taxes will rise. So there's yeah. – right. Um, it's not the – it's a complicated It's story. complicated, yeah. but it, it does seem like in terms of then city, county, state level, being able to – consider tax incentives, you know, those incentives as something that can help mitigate and offset people being able to make these nominations. And we've we've picked your brain pretty much clean about this, and I feel so much smarter for it. Um, (laughs) I feel like I could answer some questions myself if someone had now. I'm sure, Crystal, you knew a lot of this already. But, um, But we do have a final question a little bit off topic. And is that about a book you have written called Canyon Village in Yellowstone, The Model for Mission 66. So I would love if you could tell us a little more about this book and then follow up with where people can find it. Right. So this, you, you gave me this question ahead of time. I still have issues with this. Um, no, um, <laughs> it's hard to talk about herself. Hard right? to yes. talk about She's myself, but I can talk woman. about Canyon yes. Village. Okay. And okay. what it is, is really the inaugural Mission 66 project within the whole Mission 66 project, which was a nationwide project in the U.S. that essentially went from 1956 to 1966. The whole goal of Mission 66 was a mission by Conrad Wirth, the National Park Service director at the time, who had also gone through the CCC program and and had a lot of men and women working throughout um, the states doing CCC. And so he understood the value of the economic benefit of fixing up these places that essentially at, in 56, a lot of people were coming back now, you know, I mean, they're, they're coming back from the Korean War. They're com- we've, we've certainly come back from the Depression, but our parks were being loved to death. That's when that phrase was developed. And that's okay. why, and we reuse that okay. phrase now, yeah. very similar reasons. But they'll show you photos of just landlocked or car locked. What's the phrase? Just Traffic. traffic, car traffic, traffic. in Yellowstone, yeah. and 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 um, there not being enough accommodations and everything being run down. That was not just the case in Yellowstone, our, our nation's first national park, but all over all the park units. So that's mm-hmm. national monuments, and there were like 
440 units or something like that. There were there was a lot of land and property that had just fallen to the wayside. There were a lot of master plans in the 1930s that were put on the shelf. And Got so this it. is picking up so things this from the all, 30s this even. This stuff has just been on the back burner. We've a had wars where people come back. And so now, it, and you're saying this is in the early 60s, they're starting to take a look and implement. So what is it they're right. playing, so trying to do? What, what they're trying to do is improve the roads okay. in the parks, mm-hmm. improve accommodations, mm-hmm. and removing things. Oh, they were going to remove Old Faithful <gasps> oh. from Yellowstone. And, the, and they removed the Old Faithful pool. And oh, they, that's and, right. I was reading about that yeah, when I was there. There were a lot of um, aspects of the park. There was a huge park. indoor pool, right? There was. It was by Hamilton Stores. Oh, wow. And, you know, Hamilton Stores, um, the Yellowstone Park Company, those were, and, and then um, um, Wiley Camp Company were the three major concessioners in Yellowstone National Park. And yet the Yellowstone Park Company is the one that ended up developing Canyon Village, which was very, very difficult for them to do. Um, it was an expensive venture. It was never meant to be as expensive as it was for the private concessioners. Oh, and Haynes Photoshop. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Haynes and um, um, Hamilton and Yellowstone Park Company were the three primary concessioners in the park. And they were all asked to renew their... Co- well, part of the deal was that Yellowstone Park Company's contract was being renewed okay. in 1955 okay. for 20 years. And Conrad Worth had a lot to ask of them. He wanted them to not just do Canyon Village. They were going to do Lake. They were going to do Grant Village. And uh, there was a lot so of create, work. So create restaurants, create uh, these right. lodges, right. create all sorts and of things. And the park yeah. service themselves would deal with the visitor center, which was a new building type. Okay. And mm-hmm. deal with the road improvements. Okay. Yeah, there were no visitor centers in no, the beginning. No, there weren't. There were, mu- there were museums. Like, so like okay. Fishing Bridge Museum was the equivalent now of what is essentially a visitor center. And it was meant to include so much more. And yet they weren't even sure what it would or should include. And mm-hmm. so like the Canyon Village um, Visitor Center ended up having to be enlarged in, well, um, 2006 or eight, something like that, because it still didn't accommodate what they realized were all the needs they had. So mm-hmm. they were still experimenting. But this Canyon Village was an experiment. Welton Beckett, huge architecture firm, designed it. McNeil Construction, huge contracting firm. You know, they they built Disney World. Wow. And Welton Beckett designed Disney World. This is the type, of, this is the caliber of people who were designing wow. in Canyon village and it was modern architecture was i was going to say tell me about this image right here on the back of the right book. the renderings were phenomenal that that is cool it i is would want to hang out there it it's looks like so mid-century modern mid-century yeah. modern the coolest uh, shape to uh the ceiling yes. the interior where you almost look like you've got floating benches almost but you've got these cool um, lighting system coming down from the ceiling, right. very open and plant right. lots of windows. Right. Very right. cool. 90 foot long glue lamp beams. Just they were dealing massive. with new technologies and old technologies. And the the design review process is highlighted in there because it's fascinating. And a lot of the review is by a man named Frank Matson, who is George Matson's father. Oh, George Matson is an a architect local here architect and, in Bozeman. And yeah. George wow. worked for McNeil Construction doing construction at Canyon oh, Village no when he was out of college. Oh, yeah. yeah. So there are yeah. a lot of very nice local connections, connections. to that. And, and the yeah. Mission 66. Mission 66. It was Conrad Worth's mission to improve 
the project, the parks by 1966. Okay. They wanted to do it over this 10-year period. It lasted longer, and I can't, I can, they called it the parks and recreation or some other phrase because they didn't want to have people even think that the mission had not been successful. But there were more projects to do, and I think they went through 1974 to complete the master plans. Wow. I just love this book, Leslie, so much. And I know that I always ask you to talk about it (laughs) because it's so wonderful because I think people think that Yellowstone National Park is about the geysers and the animals, Mm. but there's so much human element to Yellowstone too. And this, and you really do such a good job of discussing that in this book. And so, and, and, you know, talking about buildings that, you know, growing up near Yellowstone, I went and saw every year of my life and didn't really pay much attention to. And then you you highlight them and document them and talk about them, discuss them. And now I go back with whole new eyes when I look oh. at these buildings and oh, this, these places. Oh, I know. When I just took in my niece from South Africa and my daughter was along too, and we're in there and there was a, we had a gorgeous day, but there was a little bit of rain Right when we were waiting for Old Faithful, we had driven there. And so we had gotten an ice cream and we're inside. And I am just agog looking at like a whole forest of trees to build this place. I'm wanting to go up to the little tower at the top. Can I get up? And they're all just sitting there. They could care less. And I know how that, how I was Mm -hmm. probably like that at that age too, but it is fascinating to me to look at these structures. I mean, to think that thing, because I walk in and it's such a wonder. The fireplace, the the height of that building in the inside, mm-hmm. the, just yeah. the craziness of it all. And then I saw there was a little sign that they, they'll give you a tour. And I so badly wanted to take that tour. Yeah. And, yeah, nobody – I had no takers with back. me, so I have to go back with, like, you, <laughs> yeah. Crystal. That yeah. would be way more fun. Yeah, clearly <laughs> – Different ages, different generation, different interests. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, and with, with Canyon Village Lodge, you know, um, Yellowstone was, the, the personnel there was just latching on to accepting modern architecture. And their staff, their historic resources staff, was trying hard to push it. And to actually get the renovation of Canyon Village funded was a real coup on their part. Mm. And I'm so pl- proud that they went to that extra effort. Because, I mean, Old Faithful... There's no question that it's, uh, an, I think it might actually be a National Historic Landmark. Probably, it? Is. Probably is. Probably yeah. is. But, um, but the, it's more than just this range. It's, it's more than just 1903. There's this whole history, an evolving history right. of the parks. And I'm pleased to see that the parks are getting closer to embrace, embracing, embracing Mission 66 architecture. Yeah. But they renovated this building. The colors are there again. We just scraped away at the colors really? of the light fixtures. Oh. And so we have the teal, the orange, oh, the fantastic. yellow. And those beams are all exposed. Oh, they should we've bring it We've opened it up. They have. Now I'm excited to they go have. look again. You should again. go have a drink yes. at the bar. Oh, My little question mark awesome. bar. Oh, it's yeah. so lovely. I mean, it's been relocated, but it was relocated as early as like 1964. Right. Oh, my but, goodness. Yeah. It's a beautiful, beautiful building. Really. Yeah, it really, it really is. is. And oh, the reason I brought it up was because yeah. they were doing surveys. And it turns out the younger people were very interested mm-hmm. in retro. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. So, and it feels yeah. it has that kind it of does. vibe. Right. It's not like right. the old timey, old faithful, but this is this mm-hmm. very cool retro. And to yeah. see it in a Mom. park. Oh, gosh, look at the little right. rooms you could stay in. We're looking yeah. through Leslie's book Jeez. right now. But <laughs> Okay, right. So we'll, we'll post. So, um, so Leslie, yeah. you know, if yeah. people want to 
get this book, where can they find it? Well, I believe they can still find it at the Country Bookshelf. Yes. They were kind enough to have a, um, here an in opening Bozeman. for it. Yep. Here in Bozeman on Main Street. Mm-hmm. And you can get it through Amazon. Okay. And you can get it, I do believe, at the Extreme History Project's <laughs> headquarters Yay. at 234 East Mendenhall. Yes. Wonderful. Here in Bozeman. Good plug. So we, and we, only, we have about three copies left, so I'll have to talk to you All about right, you more. you got to pull one too. for me. Okay, yeah. so okay. I can get over there. Um, yeah, you yours. got this out right before the <laughs> pandemic hit. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. So that's a great right. little pandemic reading for some people, I'm mm-hmm. sure. Well, I'm thrilled. And having just been through the park, it, it just reminded me um, of all of those things, not just the animals and the incredible views, mm-hmm. but all those other aspects that I, I feel like I'd love to go back and explore. So yeah. I know I feel yeah. like I need a week in Yellowstone I know. to do that. I right? know. Right. A day. Yeah. It's not There's enough. Not, it's not it's do just it. A, do it. Yeah. Right. Just a and the other taste. thing to remember about Yellowstone is it's like 95% wilderness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Still. Yeah. Absolutely. Still. Which and is we, wonderful. It's exactly. wonderful. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I think we've kind of taken up most of our time here today, maybe even gone a little over, but it's been incredibly fun. Yeah, what a fun conversation. I know. Yeah. So, Leslie, thank you so much. And we want to also thank all our listeners out there for joining us today. If you love this podcast, please tell a friend and make sure to subscribe so that it shows up in your podcast feed each week. And leave a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Thanks for listening today, and we hope you can join us again to find out more about The The Dirt Dirt on the the Past. past. Thanks, Leslie. Thank you. This was wonderful. Yeah. So thank you again to the Montana Shippo for sponsoring this episode. We sure appreciate it. And a big thank you to our editors, Drake Pinnell and Sierra Thomas. Thanks to Lawson Alegria for mixing the music and to Steve Durbin at KGBM and John Chadwell for help getting the podcast out in the world. Mm-hmm.